0: Good evening. Greetings in the name of Jesus. Good to be together here again. Last evening we looked at the account of Mount Sinai and how God spoke the words of life to the children of Israel and how badly they failed in obeying those words. Then we also looked at the account of Pentecost and how again God spoke the words of life, the wonderful words of God in every language that was represented there and how now the Spirit of God had come to the earth to dwell in the hearts of man and give man the power to live pleasing to God. I appreciated the thoughts of the, of the opening. We do need clean hearts and clean hands. There's a cleansing on the inside, but there's also a cleansing of the way we live. And I think those are represented in those two pictures, a clean heart and clean hands. But when God's people obey what God says, they're loved, accepted, and they become a testimony, a holy nation. This is God's plan. Tonight, the title of the message is The Great, The Great Effects of the Gospel. And I'd like to look at six effects this evening. Effects means the impact or the outcome, the consequences, if you will. Most times for me, consequences have a negative connotation. When I was bound for consequences in grade school or at home, it wasn't usually good. But consequences simply mean the result, and that's what we mean by an effect. And I trust that as we look at the message this evening, that you will truly consider what effect has the gospel had on your life, or on my life. No matter your age tonight, no matter your office, your position, your standing in the community The gospel of Jesus Christ is intended to have a great effect upon us. I'd like to take you tonight to the book of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to look at several chapters here, actually. I hope that doesn't intimidate you or scare you. I'm not going to go verse by verse through these passages. But they are linked together together powerfully in my mind, and and I'd like you to see that with me as we look here, starting in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I'm just going to read this, and I'm inviting you as I read this passage, this chapter, to consider the context here, and especially the connection to the message last evening. Paul starts here with questions. Do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we as some others epistles of commendation to you or letters of commendation from you? This commendation makes me think of something, and I apologize, this is a bunny trail, but my wife received flowers today. And some of you here are responsible for that, and I commend you. Thank you. She appreciates that very much, and I appreciate you thinking of her. Paul is starting here simply with these questions because there was some in the church here at Corinth that were challenging his authority as a messenger from God. And he's saying to them, do I need to come with letters of approval? Do I need a a library of some other special people that say I'm good enough to present the gospel? He says, ye are our epistle, written in our hearts, known and read of all men, for as, much as ye are manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tables of stone, but in fleshly tables of the heart, and such trust have we through Christ to Godward, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. But if the ministration of death, written and engraved in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect, by reason of the glory that excelleth. For if that which is done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it, or they, or one, shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now the Lord is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So, the context here. Paul saying, I don't need to defend myself with letters of commendation. I'm simply inviting people to look at your lives and see the power of the Gospel. And if it's a real Gospel, the real great Gospel that has great effects, then the Spirit inside you is going to produce certain things that are going to be observed by all. And that's all the commendation, all the recommendation that He needs. He says, just look and see at those who have heard the preaching of the Gospel and how they have responded. And I want you to notice, I trust you did as we read, the connection to the Sinai account. He talks about these tables that were written on of stone. Those are the hewn out stones that Moses carried up the mount and God wrote the Ten Commandments on them. And then he brought them down again. And we know the first time I touched on that account last evening when he brought them down, he smashed them because there they were worshipping idols. But then he returned to the mount with a new set of stones and God again wrote on there and he brought them down. And the second time he returned, you can read about this in chapter 34 of Exodus, his face glowed with the glory of the Lord. I should have asked one of these teachers, how do you pronounce S-H-O-N-E here in this part of the world? S-H-O-N-E. Shone? Okay, I'll try to say shone. Where I grew up, that was shone. So I'll try not to say that. Shone. His face shone when he arrived back at the ground. It was so bright, so glorious from being in the presence of God that he had to veil his face to hide this glory because the people, just like we saw last night, were not prepared to come into that glorious presence of God. But Paul is saying that this gospel is to have a powerful effect. And he describes that in verse 17 and 18. In summary, he says, The Lord of this Spirit, the Spirit that comes into you at the new birth, the Spirit that lives inside of us, that Spirit brings liberty. Now there's a lot of confusion about liberty in today's world. Liberty here is not the idea that you can do whatever you want, however you want, That's not what it means. It connects beautifully with the passage in James where he talks about the law of liberty. You know, there is a certain path that the righteous walk. Not an endless open book, but a way that is God's way. And in that God's way is perfect freedom and perfect peace and perfect love and all the rest that go with it. The fruit of the Spirit flows out of the life. And we are actually living the way we were created to live which is the most fulfilling place in the world to be. That's the kind of liberty he's talking. And everywhere that the Spirit of God truly is, there is this liberty. And he goes on to describe this, this change that's happening, this continual transformation, with this image of looking into a mirror. When you look in the mirror, most of us did that before we came here tonight. What do you see? You see yourself, right? Sadly, that's what you look like, okay? But what he's saying is, what you actually are seeing is more of Jesus today than you saw yesterday. That's what he's saying. That when we behold ourselves as the Spirit of God works in us, we are becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, and that transformation of our image into Him is, His image, is happening from glory to glory, And there is this great effect of the gospel. Now, the phrase that really caught my attention in this passage is in verse 12. Paul's saying it's not like it was in the old ministration. The ministration of death, he calls it. That account at Sinai where God's presence was so glorious that it burned and shook the mount That was a ministration of death, he says. It's not like that. It's not where you have this veil separating us from the truths of God and of the power and the majesty and the glory of God. He's saying it's not like that. We have this glorious hope, so we use great plainness of speech. Well, Paul, what's so plain here? What's the great plainness? That's what I wanted to understand because I like great plainness of speech. I'm not fond of beating around the bush. And I hope that I speak plainly to you and that you understand what is meant when I speak. That's what Paul is saying. There's nothing obscure about what the Gospel will do. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing... Uh, so difficult that you can 't understand it, the Bible talks about it being a great mystery, but it 's not a mystery that we can 't understand it 's a mystery that comes with clarity as the Spirit of God comes into our hearts and enlightens the Word of God so that we understand what it means and So, as we look forward here, what is this liberty? What is this changing of glo- from glory to glory? those little summary verses that Paul has at the end of this chapter, I believe he expands into six great effects of the gospel over the next several chapters. And the first one we see at the beginning here of chapter 4. I'm going to read the first seven verses. Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, But Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. The first thing I want to see here this evening, the great effect, is this great treasure. He talks about us having this treasure in earthen vessels in verse 7. What is this treasure? This treasure is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he talks about leading up to that verse. The gospel that transforms lives, that takes us from darkness to light, that moves us from death to life. This gospel of Jesus Christ, the glorious privilege of bringing our unclean hands and our unclean hearts to the power of the blood of Jesus Christ by repentance and experiencing the washing of this blood, the washing of the Word, and becoming a transformed human being. That's the gospel. Now he describes this, this tragedy here in these verses. Do you see what he says there in verse 3 and 4? If our gospel be hid, you know what he's saying? If the gospel of Jesus Christ has been accepted by you but no one around you can tell, it's hid. And tragedy of tragedies that the lost would not observe the gospel of Jesus Christ having a glorious impact on your life. Because who is it hid from? It's hid from the lost. And the devil would love to continue to blind the eyes of those that are lost. Lest they should see this glorious gospel that would shine the light into their hearts. You see, God caused his light to shine into darkness. In John chapter 3, Jesus talks about this new birth experience with Nicodemus. And he describes how God so loved the world. And he gave his son... And he goes on to describe then how men chose darkness rather than light. Why did they do that? Because their deeds were evil, it says. Those who want their deeds exposed come to the light. Those who want to hide their deeds, they stay in the dark. Do you have roaches in this part of the world? Do you know when they come out? In the dark. Do you know what happens when you turn on the light? They scurry for the dark. Some people's life has to be scurried into the dark. Try to clean it up when we're in the light. And we do our deeds in the dark. You see, darkness is sin. Light is the gospel. John writes at the beginning of the gospel of John, he talks about this great light that had come in the world. This true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. That's Jesus Christ. He came to give light. And he tells us here in this verse 6, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. Jesus tells a one verse parable in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. He tells about a man that found a treasure in a field. And this treasure that he found as he was walking along, I'm imagining him kicking the top of this treasure chest. Just no idea it was there. So he sees this and he's curious about it. He bends down and he uncovers the lid and he opens the lid and he finds an unbelievable amount of gold or treasure or whatever it was clearly had tremendous value. And what does he do then? He quickly covers it up and he goes to find out who owns this field. Maybe he goes to the township or county or wherever he needs to go. Who owns that field? As soon as he finds out who owns that field, he sells everything that he has so he can buy that field. Because the field is valuable? No. Because there's a treasure buried there. You know what the treasure is to represent? The privilege of having your sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what the treasure is. You have been introduced to Jesus. All of you know the work that Jesus did on the cross. Every one of you have the privilege then of coming to Christ and of choosing a relationship with that great treasure which is Jesus Christ. That is the first work of the gospel, that the light would shine into your hearts. The first great effect is that you recognize it as a great treasure. That by faith you call out to Christ, that you say as a Republican, when he smote his breast and he said to God, Have mercy on me a sinner. Cause every one of us are sinners outside of Christ. And every one of us are hopeless without Christ. That is the great treasure of the Gospel. And I just ask you tonight, is there light or darkness in your heart? Sin is darkness. It hides. Light reveals. You've got nothing to hide. You're in Christ. So we have a great treasure. This is the first impact, the first great effect of the gospel. I want to read on from verse 8. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then death worketh in us, but life in you. Again, let me stop there. When you accept Christ as your Savior, you believe the gospel, you repent of your sins, you accept Him by faith, You know what happens? The Holy Spirit of God takes up residence inside you, right? I trust you've experienced that. It doesn't take very long, though, after the Spirit comes in to recognize that there is a conflict inside. Do you know what I'm talking about? Or am I the only one that has that experience where I want some things, God wants different things? you understand what I'm talking about? That's the conflict. The Bible talks about that conflict as the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is that the desires that are within. It desires control. It desires gratification. It desires respect and acceptance. It wants the throne, if you want to use that illustration. The flesh wants the throne. God came in our lives. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He ought to have that throne. He won't take it by force. We must choose whether we will give it to Him. Now in this passage, in these few verses, we find an incredible promise here of what will happen when we accept this great treasure. Do you see it at the end of verse 10 and again at the end of verse 11? That the life also of Jesus might be manifest. What does manifest in the King James mean? Made known or shown. Yes. That the life of Jesus would be shown, where? In our body. Again, under the end of verse 11, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest or shown in our mortal flesh. Where? Pinch yourself if you want. In that stuff. In your physical body. That the life of Jesus is going to be shown in your body. Now friends, we don't believe a gospel that is only spiritual. You get saved somewhere in the spiritual realm and nothing happens in the physical. No, we don't believe a gospel like that. We believe a gospel that has an impact on how you live with this stuff, with your flesh. It changes how you live. And the purpose of the gospel is to transform you in a powerful way that your life becomes an illustration of Jesus Christ. That your flesh will be like Him. Isn't that incredible? Now, I told you already that my flesh doesn't always want what Jesus wants. Paul describes some examples of that in verses 8 and 9. We are troubled on every side, but not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. I don't know that I've ever really experienced persecution, but I don't think my flesh would like it. Being cast down, cast aside, is your flesh like that? No, what is the solution though for these experiences where our flesh resists but the life of Christ wants to be experienced? This great life is the second great effect of the Gospel. And how does it happen? How does this promise that the life of Jesus would be revealed in our body happen? Well, look at the beginning at verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. Now again, does that mean your physical body? Does that mean you're dying physically? Not not in the sense that I'm going to lose my life and be put into a coffin. What kind of dying are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the dying to ourselves, the dying to the flesh the dying that we read about in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, that we hear probably at every baptism. Know ye not that as many as you were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried into His death. We died with Him so that we can, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? Newness of life. That the life of Jesus Christ would be revealed in your flesh. That's what it's talking about. And the only way that's going to happen, brothers and sisters, is if my flesh continually dies. Day after day after day, after experience after experience, my flesh is in conflict with the will of God. And if I'm going to reveal the life of Jesus in my flesh, I'm going to, I can experience that great life. But it's going to be because I've learned how to die really well that's why Paul talks about dying daily he talks about how important it is that we put to death the flesh, that we crucify the flesh so then death worketh in us but life in you verse 13, we see the great treasure and the great life I'm going to continue reading here But though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Let me stop there again. When Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, comes into our life, we need to die daily. But as we die, something else is happening. The inner man is being renewed day by day. Now, I don't know. The the third point here is a great relationship. How do you experience relationship with God? You see, on the outside, there is a lot going on. There is a lot of things that are difficult. And yet, on the inside... There is this renewal, continual renewal. The presence of God, continually pre- practicing this presence of God. No matter what goes on on the outside, no one can take away the presence in the inner man of the Lord Jesus Christ. This relationship, what is it? How does it happen? I thought about asking the children tonight, and I wasn't sure how responsive your children are or how quickly I could convince them to speak up, so I didn't do this. But if I asked them tonight, who is the very favorite person for them to spend time with? What do you think they would say? You might get some curious answers. Children tend to work that way. But I suspect that from some of them, I would hear their father. That is the most interesting and fun person to be with. And if you ask them then why, that's what I would really love to get to. Do you think they could articulate why it's so special to be with that? I think some of them would probably struggle. Especially if you start asking, well, what makes him so special? They would struggle to explain that all. But they know how important that relationship is with their father and they want to be with him. And I could ask all of you, who is the most important or most special person to you? Who do you most enjoy to be with? If you're married, I hope you would say your wife, if it wasn't Jesus. If that isn't the case, then we should maybe talk later. But anyway, that's another subject. Why do we enjoy being with them? Because we value them. We appreciate them. We love them. Okay? In our relationship with God. How does this happen? God is an invisible being. You can't see Him. And yet we are called to have the most important relationship in our life with Him. So how does a relationship with God happen? Well, it is in primarily two ways. One, we hear from God. And you are hearing from Him tonight. As we look into His Word, we expound on His Word, we are understanding His Word. The Holy Spirit enlightens that word, helps us to understand it, and we hear from God. No, He doesn't speak in an audible voice, but He has spoken in a very powerful and a real way, and we hear Him. And then the Holy Spirit within us guides us to understand. The other way it happens, the second direction that happens is then when we respond. We respond to His word. We obey His word. We affirm in our minds what He has told us, what He showed us. We understand it. We are stirred in our spiritual understanding. We are called to amend our lives as He speaks. And as that happens, we pray. We we speak to Him in audible ways, in quiet ways. We sing, we praise, we worship. We are moved to awe. Oh, there is dozens of ways that this engagement happens with God. But I want you to understand tonight, that doesn't primarily happen in a tree stand, or on a boat on a lake, or on the cottage porch with a coffee, or wherever else you have these wonderful places where you go for private time. You know what happens? Primarily right here with the Word of God. Not here as in the church being, but you with the Word of God. If you're going to encounter God, it's going to be because He is speaking truth to you. Now, I'm not saying that we cannot encounter God in nature and in creation and so on. We can. But we don't know the most about God from looking at creation or looking across the valley from a deer stand. We know what God is from the Word of God. And the deepest stirrings of our heart better come from the Word of God and our relationship with Him. If they don't, we are probably creating some kind of an idol that we are worshiping, because this is how we really know God. And every man and woman that has ever had a deep relationship with God has had a deep relationship with His Word. Amen? Amen? So don't fall for this petty, shallow relationship with God that is pushed at us today, where you listen to a two-minute podcast, sit on a porch with a coffee, and you had your experience with God. No, God is interested in constantly communicating with us, renewing our inner man day by day by day. Now, brothers and sisters, we should be continually in the presence of God. Not occasionally. I'm afraid that we have reduced most of our relationship with God down to a formality that we call devotional life. And sadly, many Christians, most Christians, I think it's safe to say, struggle in this formality of a devotional life. It's much, much more than that. It's not meant to be this little make devotions where you spend 5, 10, 15 minutes with God and then you rush on about your life and you come back tomorrow if you remember and you do it again and then you rush about your life. No, every minute, every waking conscious moment of your day you should be aware of the presence of God in your life and you ought to be communing with Him. Now I know there are certain tasks that we do in our day that consume all of our mental energy and it's best if we focus in those, alright? I understand that. But the moment your mind doesn't need to be fully engaged in the task you're doing, where does your mind go? Does it go to God? Or does it go to your deer stand? Or whatever else you enjoy doing? Those who have a inward relationship with God that is continually illuminating His Word by the Spirit brings about a powerful, a great relationship that is a tremendous privilege. The fourth thing I see here is a great vision. I'm going to begin reading again at verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We're going to keep right on going there. There was no chapter here in the original. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed... Let me start again in verse 3. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked, for he we that are in this tabernacle do groan, that's our physical flesh, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now, it's a bit of a clumsy way to say it, I suppose, at least for us in our day. But he's simply saying that I would like to be clothed with my eternal body in the presence of an eternal God. That's what he's saying in my own words. Verse 5. Now, he that hath wrought us for the self same thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, in this flesh, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. What is he saying? He's saying that he has a great vision. His eyes are fixed on eternity. He says, I don't look on the things that are seen, but I look on the things that are not seen. And look at what he says in verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Is he speaking with hyperbole there? Is he exaggerating? You do realize that Paul did suffer a lot in this life. You can just go a few chapters over into chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians. I think it's 11, maybe 12. Where he makes this list of all the things he encountered. He talks about shipwreck. He talks about five times receiving 40 stripes less one. He talks about being caned, beaten with rods. He talks about being in prison. He talks about being naked and cold and all of the things that he encountered. You know what he says? They're just a light affliction. Compared to this super exceeding, more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. How could he say that? You know what the devil's always trying to do with the things we face in this life? Whatever that is. And some of you here are facing some difficult things, I have no doubt. You know what he wants you to do? Focus downward on those things. Instead of heavenward, with eyes of faith. I had to think of how often I see in the scriptures our eyes getting us in trouble. Do you remember when Peter started walking on the water? Then what does it say? He saw the boisterous waves, and he began to sink. I thought about Eve in the garden. She saw that the fruit was desirous to make her wise, and I don't have all the other words, good for food and so on, her eyes. Achan, when he was in that camp after they destroyed Jericho, he saw and he coveted. I thought about Elijah's servant that woke up in the morning after the armies had surrounded Elijah, and we're going to take him captive. And the Bible says that he came out and he saw the armies surrounding Elijah. whole army sent to capture Elijah. And the servant says, Alas, my Lord, what shall we do? Elijah's not plagued at all. Why? You know why? Because Elijah could see further. And Elijah prays and he says, God, open this poor man's eyes, my own words, so he can see. And what did he see? The entire hills all around them teeming with horses of fire and chariots and angelical hosts ready to deliver Elijah, difference where they were looking. So many today turn back in their walk with God because they see too much sacrifice, too hard of a struggle. What do you see? Paul says he sees a day coming where we're going to rise to meet the Lord in the air. And he tells us in First Thessalonians to comfort one another with these words. I don't know what you're facing, but I tell you, this is just a short time, and it's just a light affliction, and it's not long, and we're going to meet him in the air. And then my Bible describes this place of heaven in terms that I don't understand. It's such a wonderful place that we can't really use human words to describe it, and we're invited to spend eternity there with God. That's why Paul can say that what I've encountered here is but a light affliction. And brothers and sisters tonight, when we face difficulty, when we face struggles, where are we looking? That's a big part of the problem. How great is our vision? How far can we see? Do you remember Elijah, prophet that met the prophets of Baal on top of Mount Carmel? Do you remember that guy? He simply prayed and God sent fire down from heaven. Remember that account? Do you know what happened the next day after that? Remember? Elijah came down the mount. Jezebel was mad. He had killed all her prophets. Jezebel sent a servant to Elijah and said, If you are not done worse than these prophets of Baal by sundown, may God do whatever to me. And you know what it says next? When Elijah saw this, what did Elijah see exactly? What do you think he saw? Well, right in front of him, for his physical eyes, was one servant threatening him about something where God had just answered by fire and allowed him to destroy whatever it was, hundreds of these false prophets. You know what he saw? And here is what he saw. He had an imagination of what was going to happen to him, and he immediately flees all the way down to the southernmost part of the kingdom of Israel. And then he leaves his servant there and he goes another day's journey, I think it says, out into the wilderness and he lays down under a juniper bush and the grown man is pouting. Okay, that's all I can describe it as. He says, God, take my life. I don't even want to live anymore. God fed him by an angel, sent him to Mount Horeb. He walked for 40 days in the strength of that food. He went to Mount Horeb. By the way, do you know what Mount Horeb is? Mount Sinai, same place. We talked about that last evening. Then God spoke to him from the side of the mount. There was this fire first and there was this wind that rent the rocks and all these powerful examples. Elijah stood at the edge of the cave waiting for God to speak. And finally, in a still, small yeah. voice, God spoke to him. And then Elijah is again still saying, God, there's only me. I have been your faithful servant and there's nobody else. I'm the only one. I have done this. You know what his problem was? He was looking here instead of there. Friends, I know that discouragement, depression, these things can be very real and very serious for us. But God intends that the power of Jesus in us gives us a great vision that looks beyond the circumstances of the now to the glory of the future, to the God of the heavens that we have the privilege of serving. And many times, maybe if not every time, when we're floundering around in that place, we're not looking high enough. He calls us to lift up our eyes unto the hills from whence cometh our help. Nothing, friends, can destroy that vision if we truly have eyes of faith with a holy and high vision. Let me read on here to the great work. Chapter 5, verse 9. Wherefore we labor, that whether present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that one may receive the things done in his body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord. We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your conscience. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them, that which of glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then are all. Then we're all dead. What is he talking about here? He talks about the duty of it in verse 9. He talks about the fear of it in verse 11. He talks about this love that is constraining him in verse 14. Verse 15. And that he died for all that they should live. They which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh, though and hath come, committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now when we are ambassadors, now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you for us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Verse 15, which that he died for all, that they which live, those who have been made alive, those who have experienced the great treasure and the great vision and the great life, and the great relationship, now are given a great work. You're not to live unto yourself. God didn't save you to set you in a rocking chair on a porch waiting for his return, okay? That's not why he saved you. He saved you to make you an ambassador for Christ, to make you a minister of reconciliation, He has given you this work that we would be persuaded by the love of Christ and by the terror of the Lord, which we know is coming, to present to the lost and dying world and those who have fallen into sin around us the possibility to be reconciled again to a holy God through the ministry that He has given us. The the power of Jesus Christ. We are laborers together with God, the Bible tells us. We are called... Every single person who has been lifted out of the miry clay and set upon a rock has been called to get to work in the kingdom of Christ. I don't know what you're doing with your life. And I know there's a lot of mundane tasks that need to happen in life. But is the overarching goal and priority of your life to reach others with the gospel of Christ. That's what the power of the gospel is meant to do in us. Sometimes I wonder, too, about the order that we have. I've seen people all riled up about the work, this work of the ministry, this reconciliation. They want to get out and spread the word and spread the gospel. I believe there's a reason this comes in the order it comes. You're spreading the gospel without the dying to self internally first. You're spreading the gospel without the close communion with God and the obedience to His Word. And without that heavenly vision, you're going to be spreading a gospel that doesn't make any sense. But when we are broken about our brokenness, when we are transformed by His power, when we let Him work through us, then that message actually makes sense. And again, I ask you this evening, how involved are you in the great work? And I'm not saying tonight that every one of us should drop our jobs and drop our families and run off looking for lost people to save. That's not what I'm saying. But parents, as you train your children, is the number one priority that they will be trained to be effective in the kingdom of God? Are you ready to let them go once they're old enough to do their own thing and you're not sure they are yet? Or are you gonna clamp a hold of them and try to keep them here close to home where you can control them and have influence on them instead of allowing them to get involved? Young people, as you influence others around you, are you influencing them towards the great work as you have the opportunity to teach young children. Every single thing we do in life ought to be motivated towards this work of the gospel. When you have an extra dollar in your wallet, what do you do with it? Buy stuff for you or advance the kingdom of Christ through the work of the gospel? This is what happens when Jesus comes into our life. He transforms our motives. And the number one motive he gives us is to reach the lost to reach out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we're not involved, if we're not concerned, can we really say that we have this great treasure? I wonder. And let me read just a few more for the sixth thing here, starting in chapter 6, verse 1. We then, as workers together with him, Beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain. Verse 3, Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. That's not talking about preachers, people that stand behind the pulpit. That's talking about every Christian who has been giving this given this ministry of reconciliation. Back in chapter 5 and verse 19 in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses. I'm not going to take the time to read that entire list. Let me move over to verse 11. O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is in liars. Paul is saying this is the the most intimate part of my message to you. That's what he's saying. I, I am as open as I can be. I'm speaking with great plainness here to you. And he says, you are not straitened in us, you're not restricted by us, and you're, but you are restricted by your own love. That's what that means. Now for a recompense in the same, I speak as, as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Open yourselves and understand this. And then he goes on in his verse. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And then he gives six And here comes the most powerful thing that he wants to say to them. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Finally, the last great work of this powerful gospel is a great cleansing. Paul is pleading with them as openly as he can. Stop mixing your life with sin. Stop living your life one foot in the world, one foot in the church to use language from our day. Stop pretending to be a Christian but living an ungodly life. Stop walking as if you are saying you have Christ but walking just like the world. He says in verse 3, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. Stop walking in these ways where he's asking these rhetorical questions in verse 14 and 15. What connection does Christ have with Satan? That's one of his questions. What connection does light have with darkness? What place does a Christian have worshiping an idol? These questions obviously all have the same answer. None whatsoever. That's what the answer is in every case. And then he quotes this powerful passage that sums up just what we are saying. I will dwell in them and walk in them. Jesus Christ becoming your flesh, your flesh becoming more and more like Him. How are you going to do that? Come out from among them and be separate. Stop walking like a worldling and walk like a Christian. That's what he's saying. And the plea for us is this powerful impact of the gospel is this great cleansing that we would, knowing these promises, with vision that goes higher than today, would cleanse ourselves of all the filth of the flesh. And walk perfecting holiness in the fear of God. When we do that, then we are a powerful, powerful representation of Christ in the world. Now I want to be clear tonight, we're not separated to be holy. You follow? We are holy, and therefore we separate ourselves. Why is there so much appeal to this garbage in the world for the Christian? You know why? Because the flesh is still alive. You know what we do for that? Go back a few chapters and he tells us how to die to self. Nothing that is popular in the world, that is what the world is pursuing should be pursued by Christians. It's not possible today to be in Christ and friends with the world. Alright? That does not work. They are opposed to each other. The friendship of the world is what? Enmity with God. Not only are you an enemy with God, it's the very thing that makes you an enemy. That's what that word enmity means. We are called to live separate lives. And brothers and sisters tonight, if we have ever found and experienced that great treasure, the wonderful privilege of having Jesus inside, it will continually draw us further and further and further away from the wickedness of the world. If we're still finding ourselves drinking at that trough, we need to think seriously about where we're actually at. Let's bow our heads to pray. Father, we come to you this evening. We thank you for the great effects of the glorious gospel. And tonight as you touch each of our hearts, I pray that we would be open to you. I pray that you would convict where conviction is needed. I pray that you would bring peace to those who have peace. Lord, I don't know what the needs are tonight, but you do. And I just ask that you would meet with us here. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to give an invitation this evening. There's a lot of questions I could ask you, a lot of invitations, a lot of different things you could respond to this evening. we covered a lot of ground. I'm just asking you tonight, is it right inside? You know that. Maybe you've never found and claimed the treasure of Christ. It would be a wonderful time to do that. Why? What are you waiting for? Maybe you know that there are things that you have not crucified, that there is something specific that God brought to your mind that has claimed attention that it shouldn't have. Maybe there's something that you are doing in your life that you know is, is a worldly practice that is drawing you away from God. It's marring your testimony and your ability to be that image of Christ in your life I don't know what the need is tonight but we're simply going to sing a a verse or two of just as I am we'll sing by memory you can sing with me and if God is speaking to you and you know that you have something you need to take care of I'm simply inviting you to acknowledge that you can stand to your feet where you are and then make your way to the back and someone will pray with you or you can come to the front and someone will come join you here however you want to make that need known God has peace for you if you will come to him. So again, I just ask you tonight, is it right? And if it's not, would you come to him and experience the great effects of the gospel? Let's sing. Just as I Thank you for your attention again this evening. I invite you to stand for closing prayer. Holy Father, we come into your presence again in the name of Jesus. We thank you for the shed blood. We thank you for the power of the gospel. As we go from this place, I pray that the effect would be real, And that it would be continual in our walk. Bless each one as we part from here. And Lord, we would ask for the privilege of being back together again tomorrow evening. That you would allow each one to come. Bless us with your presence as we go through the night, through the day tomorrow as you tarry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.